Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we recognize today that what makes this day great is you. The power of your name. The fact that we have a level of surrender when we worship you and the great sound that comes as we sing songs. And we pray that over these next few minutes that by your anointing and with your enablement, you would give me the ability to communicate clearly your word in a way that we can understand and then give us the courage to apply it. For, Lord, it's one thing to be hearers of your word. It's another to be doers. And so for that strength we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you today about connection. Connection. I mentioned a few weeks ago when I was ministering in the Beyond series, what happens after we die, that I, I had one message where we touched on what is a rewardable life look like, and I told you then that there was so much involved in that that when the, mess- when the series was over, I would circle back around and, and address that, and I want to do that this morning, and this, this may not be the last morning I address it because it's a, an exciting topic. Before I do, let me set the context of this. What I am talking about today, the reward of the believer, has everything to do with those who are already followers of Jesus Christ. I'm talking in the context of people who have surrendered their life to the Lord, who've recognized that Jesus died for them to pay a penalty for their sin that they could not pay, and as a result of surrendering lordship of your life to Him, you now live in submission to Him, and in submission to Christ, you live your life to bring Him glory. What I'm not talking about is a life in which you think that by the good things that you do, you earn salvation, that you earn a place that when you stand before God, He's going to say, you did enough good things that it didn't really need me. You you were just so good that you can come into heaven without me. I just need to be very clear that the context of my statements this morning have everything to do with those who have already surrendered. So if you're here today and you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then I'm glad you're here but understand that the comments are for those that have surrendered to the Lord already. What if I told you that the choices that you make today, the big choices or the little choices, the choices of who you're going to hang out with, who you invite over for dinner, the choices of the conversation topics that you choose, choices about what you do with your money, How you invest your time and what you do there have a difference in eternity. Make a difference, not just today, but make a difference in eternity. We live in such a stage and in such a day where we see our life in the context of what we live today. We see our life as separate. Here we live, here we do, and we understand, even as believers, that there is is an eternity waiting, but we often don't make the connections between the life that we live, the decisions that we make, and the things that we do today with what will come in the future and the rewards that God will bring as a result of the decisions that we make today. This morning I want to take a few minutes and bring together a connection that what God sees when He sees our life, He views it differently than oftentimes the way that we view things. And I want to use some Legos. I I discovered that when my kids moved out, the boxes they take are not their old toys. They leave those at mom and dad's house to store forever. And so as I was running around downstairs, I discovered Legos, and I sat down and discovered it takes me a lot longer to put together a wall than it does my three-year-old grandkids. 
But I want to use these as an illustration today because uh, this represents the life in which we live today. This is, this is our earthly existence. And then this represents an eternal existence or our forever life that we have often talked about over the past few weeks of, of an eternal aspect. And we often live in such a way that we believe that there is a big gap between the two. And that there's not much of a connection between those two. And in fact, often from this perspective, we don't even often think about this perspective, this eternal perspective, until a tragedy strikes. And when we're faced with a tragedy and somebody has an untimely death, suddenly our thoughts leap over to what does eternity look like? What will heaven be like? Or having just experienced a birthday last week and I've discovered that the numbers keep getting higher. The older we get, there are times that as we get older, we begin to think a little bit more about what this will be like because we recognize there's more behind us than there is in front of us. And in those moments, our thoughts begin to move toward eternity and we start thinking about what will our forever life be like. But for most of us, it's two boxes and they are separated. Astonishingly, Christ talked about a connection between those two that I think is valuable for us as we grow in the Lord and understand that. And millions of people, and even statistics indicate those who are followers of Christ, seem to miss that connection. Bruce Wilkinson, who is the author of several books, one of them entitled A Life God Rewards, indicated that the vast majority of people who consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ today don't give much thought to the practical applications of the decisions that they make in this life and how they will affect the reward and impact of the coming life. In fact, most people don't spend enough time in the Scriptures to see what Jesus has to say about the two, and I want to share that with you today. In fact, Jesus, when he talked on earth, oftentimes it says that people were astonished. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it says, When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were amazed, or they were astonished, or they were astounded at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The reason that Jesus was able to teach in such a way that astonished his hearers and with such authority is because Jesus had a perspective. He's been in heaven. He's been on earth. He knows how the connection of those things mean. And so he was speaking in a way that those who were listening were absolutely astonished at his perspective of the life that they were living and the life that was yet to come. And I can tell you that as Jesus speaks in his word, we are confronted about the life that we live now and our forever life. And we will be astonished at what he has to say about the connection of these two things. And so today I want to talk about three different connections very quickly. I was told before I started this morning, somebody said, it's hot in here, so be short today. So I will. I want to talk about the party connection, the persecution connection, and the postponement connection. The first point is the party connection. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. What was happening here is it says in, in 14.1, On the Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee or a very important spiritual leader, 
It says, he was being carefully watched. Have any of you ever gone someplace where you enter into a situation where maybe you're not familiar with everybody there and you just feel their eyes on you? Have any of you ever experienced that? Sometimes it's direct and you look at them and they turn their head away and other times you just know, I don't care. And they just are staring at you and you're going, okay. It's like, is my breath bad? You know, the scripture indicates that Jesus was going to one of those kind of dinners where he knew everybody was going to be watching him. And as you get to verse 7 of that chapter, Luke 14, 7, it says, and when Jesus noticed, so now I love this because not only is everybody watching Jesus to see what he does, he's watching them. And he's standing there and he's noticing the interaction. And he said, when he noticed how the guests picked the place of honor at the table. Now, Here's the interesting thing about that. And for those of you who have lots of people over to dinner and, and you know, your family from time to time, they'll come over. It's, it's always the host who chooses where people sit. In fact, you'll go to somebody's house and you'll come to the table and you'll look at the host and you'll say, where would you like me to sit? Because it's the host that gets to choose that. Notice here that all of these important religious leaders went in and at this dinner party, they felt, I need to choose where I will sit because... The closer you could get to the host, the more important you were. And so here are all these religious leaders, and suddenly they are in a, a political and spiritual competition as to where they're going to sit, and they're maneuvering themselves. They're watching Jesus, and Jesus is standing on the side, and he's watching all of them as they determine their own importance by how close they're going to get. And since they're all watching Jesus, he begins to address them as he, he watches all of them, and he says, listen, so he's talking to the guests now. He says, listen, when you come to a home to have a dinner, don't try to maneuver yourself to get the best seats. Because what happens here is that you think that you are important to this extent, but the host may come up to you and say, excuse me, I need you to get out of this important seat and move to the kids' table. And in which case, if that's what the hosts have to do, you're going to be humiliated in front of everybody because you thought you deserved this seat, and the host said, oh, no, 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 no. You go sit at the kids' table. And I would imagine the room was very quiet as Jesus was talking, and they're staring at him, and then he says, but here's, here's the deal. If when you come to something like this, you start by just going to the kids' table and sitting down there, then the host has the opportunity to look and see you at the kids' table and go, oh, no, 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 no. You're far too important to sit here. And then he will elevate you out of that and move you to a place of honor. And so rather than being humiliated, you will be honored. But when you're working so hard to find the best seat, then you're in trouble. And so he speaks to all of these glory-seeking individuals by saying in verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, it's all where you're aiming to go in the first place. Now, the host of this party was standing behind Jesus, and he's listening to this as Jesus addresses all of his guests. And perhaps in the back, he starts smiling, and maybe he giggles a little bit. And then Jesus turns around and faces the host, and he begins to speak to him. But what Jesus says here astonished everybody because he begins to make a connection between what is happening that night and what will happen in eternity. And here's what he says in Luke 14, 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, 
And remember, he's talking to the host now. Don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors. Now, that is not saying you should never have your family over for dinner. Just want you to catch that. There's a point to this. So don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because if you do, they may invite you back so that you will be repaid. You see that word? Repaid. In other words, the opportunity that they have in feeling indebted to you because you invited them over, and this happens to us all the time. You go to somebody's house, and as you're leaving, you put an arm around and say, man, that was wonderful tonight. Can't wait to have you over to our house so that we can pay you back for your kindness to us. But in verse 12, he says this, but when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your other. If you do, then they may invite you back and you will be repaid. And, and then he goes on to say in verse 13, because he's speaking of repayment now, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And then it says, and you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Why are you blessed? Because you will have invited people that cannot invite you back. You will have invited people. You will have paid attention. You will have invested in the lives of people that have no ability whatsoever to enrich your life by having you come to the house. Now, you may invite some people over to dinner because you hope they invite you just so that you can see the way they decorate their house. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, then you've been repaid. But... He makes this great connection. And so we probably have all had that happen to us where we see that there are people who are in need and we respond to them knowing full well that they will never be able to give back to us. How many of you have had a situation and at the end of that you feel great because, boy, I, I did something for somebody that I had no expectation whatsoever that they would ever be able to repay me. And God says, you know why you feel good? Because you're blessed. Blessed means you're happy. We have a happiness that takes place when we do things for people that have no ability to do anything back for us. So why did Jesus say that we would be blessed? And why did he say that we would be happy about doing this? Because he knows that there's something within us that we need to be able to give to others rather than just receive ourselves. And in the giving in the recognizing needs, in responding to that prompting of his Holy Spirit, we find an enjoyment in our spiritual life that we can get no other way but by simply giving. But I want you to understand that that's not exactly what Jesus was saying here because he goes on to say in verse 14, although they cannot repay you, in other words, just simply the fact that you're blessed and you feel good about it, that's not all there is to it. Although they cannot repay you, he says this, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now let this sink in for a minute. Okay? So what you're saying to me is that while I am living life here, if I do things for others that they can't do back to me, I'm going to be rewarded when I'm dead. Just let that sink for a minute. Yep. Now you can tell why everybody that was at that banquet was just so overjoyed. When I'm dead, when this life is over, 
Suddenly there's going to be this manifestation of reward and gifting as a result of what I did here. And so when I'm dead, at the resurrection of the righteous, I will be rewarded. So the question that comes to us is, how do you get repaid in heaven after you're dead? And why would Jesus say that you're going to be happy when you die and you see what the repayment will be like? I think part of that comes from the aspect of what does Jesus, Jesus really mean when he says repaid. Now, there's a, a Greek word that is used within this particular scripture when he talks about being repaid. It comes from two Greek words. One of them is, is didomai, which means to give back, to give back or to give, and apo, which means back. So you put them together, apo, didomai means I'm going to give back to you. So if there are things that we do on behalf of others that they have no ability to repay, God says, don't worry about it. Number one, you're going to be blessed with a happy feeling because of what you've done, but I've taken records of it, and I am going to apoditomai. I am going to pay you back in a way that will be far greater than you can imagine at the resurrection. In other words, he sees a connection between the life that we live now and our forever life that we often just don't make. The best way of, of understanding this word, and I, and I did a search in Scripture to find out everywhere that apodidomai was listed, and the best way to describe it would be this. This word is used in the story of the Good Samaritan. He said he found a man that was half dead. He'd been beaten up. All of his valuables were stolen. He was without clothes. He's naked. He's bleeding. Other people had the chance to respond. They didn't. The Good Samaritan comes, picks him up, bandages his wounds, pulls pours oil in his wounds, puts him on his, his ride, takes him to an inn, and he tells the innkeeper, listen, here's some money. Take care of this man. And if you spend more than what I am giving you, when I return, I will pay you back. That Greek word is used there, apodidomai, I will pay you back everything that you have spent. In other words, when we do things for others... In this life, God takes note of it, and he says, I will pay you back in a greater measure than you ever thought possible in this life, and it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. So he begins to change our focus while we live here, not just to get do things that we were rewarded for here, but think in ways of how can I make my investment in heaven greater than it is now. The second connection that Jesus makes scripturally is found in Luke 6, and it's called the persecution connection. A little over a year ago, I was, I was in a country where it is not as easy to preach the gospel as it is here, and it's not as easy to be a Christian because the pastors that I was speaking to and their children went through great persecution to the point where some of them told stories that because I am a pastor... When my children go to school, the teachers will abuse them. Some of them had burn marks where cigarettes were burned onto their skin as a result of being children of the ministers. Some of the pastors told me stories that when they grew up, that the teachers would give permission to all of the other students to beat them up, saying, they believe in God, so if their God is real, then their God will protect them. And then mock and joke as they were beaten up again and again and again by the other students. And when I had conversations with them, I would ask them, why, why do you put up with this? And how do you as a parent, how does it make you feel knowing that your children 
sometimes are in danger because of the place they go to school. And they said, here's what we understand. We recognize that Scripture tells us that because we are followers of Jesus Christ, there will come persecution within our life. And because we are persecuted for what we believe and our values and our standards, we recognize that God not only has a plan in our testimony, but also there will be a reward that will be greater than what we can imagine here. And here are the scriptures that they talk about. As I listened to their stories, I I thought back to the stories that I have often read of the Christians who would go into the lion's den in the Colosseum and and the stories were told that as they were let in, knowing they were about to be devoured by lions, that they would raise their hands and begin to sing worship songs and that there were some of them that were intending doing everything they could do to be led into the lion's den, understanding a greater connection between that life and the one to come than we do today. Paul and Silas in prison, in stocks, uncomfortable having been beat, were singing hymns unto the Lord. How did they do that? Because they understood the persecution connection with reward on the other side. And so in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Blessed or happy are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they, basically when they don't want you around to ruin their activities because of your values. Have you ever had that happen? People say, you know what, we would invite you to this, but we're going to be doing some things that you don't agree with, so we prefer you not come because you make us feel uncomfortable with your values. And he says, and they're going to insult you, and they're going to reject your name as evil. In other words, your righteousness makes what they do feel so uncomfortable that they call you evil. That's what the Scripture says. And all of this is because the Son of Man dwells inside of you. Now, I don't know about you, This does not sound like fun to me. Some of you, maybe that just sounds like the highlight of your life. Love to go from persecution to persecution. I try to avoid it if I can. But the scripture indicates that we are to react in a certain way. So here's what it says in verse 23. It gets worse. Rejoice in that day. And then it says, and leap for joy. Now, you must understand that as the Greeks were writing this, leaping for joy was the most expressive form of joy that the Greeks knew. I mean, it wasn't just, whoo, this is a good day. I mean, it was, yes, yes, yes. And so when they're being persecuted, they are rejoicing and leaping for joy. And the people that don't understand the connection between this life and the next look at them and think, they are the weirdest people I've ever seen. And yet scripture clearly draws that there needs to be from us a rejoicing at what is taking place within our life. Now, I believe that we as Americans are going to come to a place where it's going to grow harder and harder to be Christians. We're already beginning to see it, but we have nothing like a lot of the other places of the world has it. And I believe in that time that the love of many is going to wax cold because of the persecution issue. But Christ is saying, I want you to understand, even though you only see things from this perspective, I've got another view. And if you knew what I knew, when that happens to you, you would literally jump up and down and shout for joy because you just earned something massive that I know about that I can't wait to give you. So why should we respond like that? Because it says... Because great is your reward in heaven. So let me see. 
I mocked and ridiculed, made fun of, persecuted for my faith. And Jesus says, don't be just happy. Be ecstatic and jump for joy because there's a connection that we don't often see between the way we handle being children of God here and what he wants to do there. And God is in charge of both sides. We often think he's only in charge of this. And we beg him to get involved with us here. And then often when we're praying, we're trying to make him do something he doesn't want to do. Oh, God, would you bring healing to me today? Would you, would you do this for me today? And, we're, and it's like, oh, you know, he's in charge of both of these. And he shocks us with the size of the description of what is going to come to us. And we say, well, when is this reward going to come? After you're dead. Where's it going to come? In heaven. Interesting enough, in this particular passage of Scripture, Christ didn't use apodidomai here for reward, but he used a different Greek word. It was the word mystos here. And that same word mystos is used in another Scripture that will help us, I believe, understand its meaning just a little bit. In 1 Timothy 5, 18. It said, for the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. Now, the word wages is the Greek word mistos. In other words, it's something that your behavior and activity earns you. That's different than a reward. And so mistos literally means paycheck. There is a way for we as believers to live which earns us a paycheck that he is going to give to us when he returns. So Jesus picked this word very carefully. And he says, you work for me, and I am the boss, and you are going to love it when you find out how I pay the people who work for me well because it's going to blow your mind. He said, so I'm going back to heaven. And I'm going to prepare your mistos, your wage, literally, and it's going to be big. And then I'm going to come back from heaven and I'm going to pay it to you. So Jesus is saying there's a connection between this life that we live and what is going to come. And he says it's going to be great. It leads us to the third connection, the postponement connection. In Matthew 16... Verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come. By the way, Jesus is coming again. Okay, I, I thought I was in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> Jesus is coming again. Let me give you one more chance because you're just starting to wake up. Jesus is coming again. Yeah. Hallelujah. You see, we have it so easy that that doesn't mean much to us. Because we wonder if it's going to be as good there as it is here. There are some places in the world, if you say that, they will break out in dancing and joy because they look forward to the next life more than this one. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward, apodidomai, each person according to what he has done. In other words, everything that you do in this life here is either rewardable or not. And God is keeping records. Everything that you do, the way you respond to people, the way you treat people, the way you handle your money, the way you handle your time, the way you handle the ministries that you're involved in, what you do with the Lord, what you do with your testimony, it is all rewardable. There's a great connection there. 
And God says that when he comes again, at his coming or at your death, there is going to come reward. Now, here's our problem. We like instant gratification. If I'm going to work for you today, am I going to get a paycheck tonight? If I'm gonna, when, when's payday coming? I, you know, I, I don't mind putting in the work, but I want to make sure I know when I'm getting paid, and I would like to know what the wage is up front. Is it minimum wage? Is it better than that? What are the benefits of this job? You let me know all that, and then I'll consider the contract. I might sign it. We're just used to instant gratification. We get hungry. We got a microwave. We throw things in there. Boom. I mean, 30 seconds later, we are eating. And Jesus comes along, and he says, you need to understand, from my perspective, what you see here is such a sliver of time compared to what I'm preparing here. And there's a connection in the postponement And Jesus knows that there are times that we get weary in doing the right thing. And he wants to encourage us not to give up. Not to give up. There is one verse in the Bible found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 22, verse 12, that has both of the words mistos and epididymi together in it. And Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward, mistos, your wage, the wage for your faithfulness is with me. I've got your wages. And then he says, and I will give, apodidomai, I will give back to everyone according to what he has done. And so we look at our lives and we see two pieces. And Jesus says, here's the issue. I am the connection between it all. So when I look at your life, I don't see it as that which exists right now and that which is to come. I see your life in one complete thing. And you have this short period of time to live in such a way to earn a wage and be rewarded. And then you have eternal life to enjoy what I'm going to bring to you. Jesus clearly and definitively wants us to understand that he has a massive wage and abundant reward for those who understand the connection between the life now and that which is to come. And as we explore this a little bit over the next couple of weeks, we're going to sit back astounded at how gracious and how good and how generous our God is. But today, He wants us to understand the connection.